can that be? Stuart, send them away. At once, sir. I mustn't be disturbed. Not this place. Dr. Rattenstein, what are you doing? I'm sorry, sir. I couldn't stop them. Nick, Nick, please come home with us. You're going mad. Never. This very night is the accumulation of my life's work. And you are all here to witness it. Do you see that podcast over there? Tonight it shall be live and uploaded into iTunes. Nick, you are always my best pupil. But I fear for your sanity. Professor O'Brien, you taught me so much about asking and answering questions. But now I know how to put them into a podcast. Now sit down, all of you. See, the storm is at its height. The lightning must strike any moment now. See there? It's alive! It's alive! The Jodcast. Bringing you sun, sand, and suffering on the planet Mars. With Megan Argo, Stuart Lowe, Ian Morrison, and Nick Rattenbury. The Jodcast. June issue. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. Hi everyone, and once again, Dave isn't here, he's been a bit busy with other things, um, but he promises us he will be back for the June extra issue of the Jodcast. But hopefully you'll be satisfied with just Stuart and myself for this episode. Coming up in this episode, we have an interview with Ben Morn from Bristol, talking about how he can weigh some of the heaviest structures in the universe. We have the night sky with Ian Morrison. We have your feedback... But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, the discovery of the Milky Way's younger supernova, a supernova caught in real time, and a runaway supermassive black hole. Until now, the most recent supernova explosion known in our galaxy occurred around 330 years ago, producing the remnant we know today as Cassiopeia A. Galaxies like the Milky Way, however, usually host a few supernova per century, so statistically we should see somewhere around 50 supernova remnants that are less than 2,000 years old. In fact, astronomers have detected less than 10 supernova remnants this young, and this lack of evidence for recent supernova activity is a puzzle. There are various theories which could explain this discrepancy. It is possible that the Milky Way could produce an anomalously small number of these explosions, or that many supernovae that occur take place in heavily obscured regions, such as inside dust clouds. The discovery of a new remnant, the youngest supernova remnant yet found in the Milky Way, located near the centre of the galaxy and hidden behind a thick dust cloud, adds weight to the second of these theories. The remnant is known as G1.9 plus 0.3, and would have appeared to explode during the 19th century. Due to the large amount of dust and gas in the surrounding region, it is unlikely that anyone would have been able to spot it at the time. It was originally detected by radio observations made using the Very Large Array in 1985, and re-observed recently using both the VLA and the Chandra X-ray Observatory. Both the radio and X-ray images show a shell structure typical of an expanding supernova remnant. 
using the two radio images made 22 years apart, the expansion rate of the remnant has been calculated and the age determined. The radio observations, led by Dave Green of Cambridge University, show that the remnant is a mere 140 years old, the youngest by nearly two centuries. Stephen Reynolds of North Carolina State University, who led the X-ray observations, says that the discovery lets astronomers study a supernova remnant at a stage that has not been observed before and may help us understand the evolution of remnants between the point where the early emission fades and several hundred years later, when we see a remnant like Cassiopeia A. Despite there being few supernovae in the Milky Way, supernovae are discovered fairly regularly in other galaxies. Because they are unpredictable, searching for supernovae is a time-consuming task, requiring many observations of the same galaxy over long periods of time. There are a few telescopes dedicated to this task, and many amateur astronomers who regularly photograph large numbers of galaxies looking for these stellar explosions. But because the explosions happen so fast, all we see are the afterglows. In results published in May, a team of astronomers describe how earlier this year they were lucky enough to catch an explosion as it happened. Alicia Soderberg, one of the team and a postdoc at Princeton University in the USA, was looking at a galaxy known as NGC 2770 using the X-ray telescope on the Swift satellite. They were observing the X-ray afterglow of a supernova which occurred in NGC 2770 in 2007. What they saw was the X-ray flash from another supernova happening in real time, the first time such an event has been captured this way. It has long been predicted that there should be prompt emission of X-rays when a supernova explosion occurs, caused when the shockwave generated as the core collapses collides with the outer envelope of the star's material. This is the first time that this X-ray emission has actually been detected, and will help validate theories of the physics involved in the early stages of a supernova explosion. The next generation of X-ray instruments are designed to have a very wide field of view and will be able to look for these events over large areas of the sky in a single observation, adding yet more observational evidence to test these theories. It is thought that all galaxies contain a massive black hole, but what happens when galaxies collide and merge? As the black holes from each galaxy's nucleus get closer together, they start to orbit one another, eventually coalescing to form a much more massive black hole. As they orbit and merge, general relativity says that they lose energy in the form of gravitational waves. The enormous momentum involved in the final stages of such a collision can give a kick to the final merged black hole, sending it flying out of the galaxy altogether. Early simulations, however, show that the recoil velocities involved would only be high enough for black hole systems to be able to escape dwarf galaxy mergers. More recent models, however, have shown that the merged black holes could have much greater velocities up to thousands of kilometres a second, and fast enough to escape much larger galaxies. Now, for the first time, observational evidence of such a merged black hole system travelling at high speed away from a galactic merger has been found. The object was detected by a team at the Max Planck Institute for Extraterrestrial Physics in Germany, led by Stephanie Kamosa, who looked at data collected by the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. When a black hole leaves a galaxy, theory says that it takes some of the gas with it, but leaves some behind in the centre of the galaxy. The team looked for evidence of two clouds of gas with the same properties, but moving at different velocities, and then measured the difference between them. What they found was evidence of a possible black hole moving away from its host galaxy merger at more than 2,600 kilometres per second. The team planned to carry out follow-up observations of their candidate object using the Hubble Space Telescope. 
They hope that the Hubble's resolution will enable them to detect the separation between the galaxy and the black hole candidate. This detection, if confirmed, gives gravitational wave experiments further hope that there are events out there for them to detect. And finally, over the years many spacecraft have been sent to Mars, some with the aim of mapping the planet from orbit, others designed to land on the surface. Some of these probes have proved more successful than others, with several spacecraft being lost before they can take useful data. One such mission was the Mars Polar Lander, which travelled to the Red Planet in 1999, going missing as it entered the planet's atmosphere. Now, the team operating the high-rise instrument have posted a set of highly detailed images of the missing craft's projected landing site, and challenged the public to help locate it. The high-rise team say that the amount of data is vast, and to find evidence of the lander or its remains would take a very complex algorithm. The human eye is far more efficient at these tasks than computers. Each image is 20,000 by 80,000 pixels in size, and there are 18 of them altogether, covering the area in which the polar lander could be located. Visitors to the high-rise website have already made several possible sightings, but the area covered by the images is so vast that there is plenty of ground left to cover. Mars Polar Lander may have failed in its attempt to investigate the polar regions of Mars, but some of the same instruments have now made it to Mars on the Phoenix probe, which landed in the northern polar region of Mars on May the 25th. Phoenix is so named because it uses not only instruments from the ill-fated Polar Lander, but the overall design of the Mars Surveyor craft, built in the year 2000, but mothballed a year later. The probe uses a robotic arm to take surface and subsurface samples, looking at the composition of the soil and suspected ice in the Martian Arctic. The samples will be analysed on board the lander and the results transmitted back to Earth. The lander is expected to operate for three months, sampling the Martian atmosphere as well as the soil. Thanks for that, Megan. And that was Megan's first news from the Southern Hemisphere. That's right, yes. So she's uh, now happy and safe in Perth, uh, getting started on her new job, but still producing the news, which we're very grateful for. We are indeed. And as Megan mentioned at the end of the news there, Mars Phoenix lander has just landed near the North Pole of Mars. And there have been some great images coming back from a whole series of Mars missions, in fact. One of those is Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, and that's taken images of Mars Phoenix as it was parachuting down towards the surface, which is an amazing shot to get. Absolutely fantastic. It's incredible to think that there is a, a satellite around Mars watching another satellite, or probe in this case, landing on the, the Martian surface. It's fantastic. Yeah, 310 kilometres up. Mm. They first released a small image showing you the parachute and the lander beneath it, and then they, they released a stunning image which shows the full context of that previous picture, which shows the Heimdall crater in the background as it's coming down to land on the surface. It's an incredible picture, basically, because it's got something in flight mm. at the time on Mars, yes. which is pretty impressive. Is that where Phoenix has landed? Is inside this crater? or No, Phoenix has landed quite a way away from the crater. Mm. It just happened to be passing in front of it as Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter took the image. So Phoenix is going to be set on the Martian surface for three months? Yeah. Uh, it's basically limited by the amount of light, because eventually it's going to go into darkness as... As, the, as Mars goes around the Sun, and the sunlight drops at the North Pole, mm. um, and eventually it'll have not, it won't have enough power to keep going, so it will die. Although I think they do have plans in case they somehow manage to survive through the, the Martian winter, so or the North Pole winter. And it's a surface analysis experiment, isn't it? It is. It has an arm with a scoop on the end, and it will dig down underneath the surface to find out what's beneath, mm. which is pretty exciting. 
they'll also be looking. They don't have a rover, and like Mars rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, so they won't be trundling around. Then, but they'll be digging downwards. Hmm. So they're going vertically rather than horizontally. <laughs> and speaking of the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter um, helping to find man-made objects on Mars, uh, interesting project uh, for people out there to do is to take a look at the the, the vast areas on uh, on the Martian surface, looking for wreckage of the uh, polar lander. Indeed, and that was in 99, I think, it crashed. In fact, Earth hasn't done too well in getting things to Mars over the years. We're doing a lot better in the last decade, but there's a webpage um, online called the Mars Scorecard, which keeps a track of the number of points for Earth and Mars. A successful mission to the other planet gets you one point, and an unsuccessful one loses you a point. As of this week... With Mars Phoenix, Earth is now drawing even, finally, with Mars. <laughs> you have to explain the, the point-scoring system, because presumably there are no Martians sending missions to Earth, so... So basically, if you get successfully to to Mars with a with an Earth spacecraft, then that counts as a point. If you fail in that mission in some way, it blows up on launch, or it fails to get to Mars, or hobbles around the solar system and then fails to get to Mars, then we lose a point. So we're finally at 2020, Earth to Mars, so... It sounds like fun. We'll, we need to wait for Dawn, hopefully, to successfully get to Mars, and then we'll draw into the lead, finally. <laughs> we'll put a link on uh, on the webpage there, I think, maybe. Yep. That's good fun. Right now, to your feedback. So thank you very much to everybody who sent in their feedback, and uh, I've got a collection of emails from everybody. So thank you very much to Bill Hay, Chris Ward, Safari Bob, and Steve Green for their emails. Stuart, you have some uh, iTunes y- reviews. Yes, on iTunes we've had reviews from RS Winter, Classical Man 88, and OBAF. Um, presumably that's short for OBAF GKMRNS. Did Very I say good. that correctly? I, I think so, yes. That's the stellar classification system. In case you were wondering. In case you were wondering, yes. I have some real mail here. I have some postcards. And so many thanks to Dave for his uh, postcard advertising the extraordinary mugging of Mr. Winterbottom. Takes too long to explain that. And to <laughs> Jan O'Neill, uh, who sends a lovely postcard from Thailand with a lovely golden sand beach with blue sky, crystal clear water, completely unlike what I can see out the window in the Jodcast studio. <laughs> yes, we do like your postcards. And they're making a lovely addition to our Jodcast studio on the wall, so please do keep them coming in. And another piece of real mail which came into the uh, Jodcast was from Peter Roberts, who sent us a lovely letter and a CD. Uh, he So what's on the CD, Nick? Uh, music. Peter Roberts records his music as Alpha 7, and his new CD, entitled Space, is inspired in part by... Jodrell Bank Observatory. So thank you very much indeed for sending us that CD. And uh, people, it's- if you're out there and you want to get a bit of... Lovell Telescope-inspired music, then Space by Peter Roberts is hitting the stores now. Very good indeed. So please do, everybody, keep your feedback coming in. We do enjoy reading uh, how you listen to the Jodcast, how you think we can improve. And certainly if you are in the States and you listen to the Jodcast via iTunes, please do review us on the US iTunes website. In fact, if you listen to us any old how, please review us however you can. It will certainly help us get slightly higher on the, the featured section of the US iTunes store so other people may be able to find us. And enjoy our unique blend of uh, accents, I think somebody said in, in a recent piece of feedback. Yes, we've got to see how Australian uh, Megan goes while she's there. <laughs> right, moving on now to our interview with Ben Morn about how he's discovered a means for weighing some of the biggest structures in the universe, clusters of galaxies. I look at galaxy clusters 
um, and in particular I study the X-ray emission from galaxy clusters. Now, this is an exciting part of doing astronomy is that we've got not just one wavelength to look at. I mean, back in the day, it was just what you could see with your eye, yeah. which was optical wavelengths. And yes. then people just started to discover other wavelengths. Radio came in. And now we're extending into the extreme form of, um, I guess, uh, observing the universe, which is in these high-energy wavelength bands. So X-ray is one of them. That's right, yeah. When did X-ray astronomy really kick off? Well, it really kicked off in the, in the 60s when uh, because... Um, the Earth's atmosphere absorbs the X-rays from space, and so X-ray astronomy wasn't possible until people started to put X-ray detectors onto rockets that could be launched above the Earth's atmosphere for short periods of time. Um, and one of the first things that they found was that there were bright X-ray sources out in the universe. What One of the most luminous types of X-ray sources turned out to be clusters of galaxies. Now, clusters of galaxies were known already from optical observations, and they were when when you look at one with the, the with the telescope or with the naked eye, if, um, although you can't actually, there are there are none that are near enough to study with the naked eye. But if you say the Hubble Space Telescope to to look at a cluster of galaxies, what you see is um, a cloud of hundreds or maybe even thousands of galaxies that are essentially all kind of swarming around together, a bit like a cloud of bees. And one an interesting experiment that was done back in the 30s was uh, an astro- astronomer Fritz Zwicky looked at these galaxies in the galaxy cluster, and he measured their velocities by looking at the redshifts of spectral lines uh, from the galaxies. And what he found was that the galaxies were, were buzzing around at quite high velocities. And so by, by using those velocities to estimate the kinetic energy of all of the galaxies in this cluster, and then requiring that there must be enough mass in this galaxy cluster to, to um, generate enough potential energy to hold the whole thing together so it didn't just fly to pieces, then he found out that if he added up all of the mass that he could see in these galaxies, there was nowhere near enough to explain the amount of mass that he needed to hold the galaxy cluster together. And this was the first observational evidence for dark matter. Now, that, this was, um, wasn't accepted at the time. And astronomers were very skeptical of this, that we, uh, that he, he required this, um, extra invisible material that, that must be there to hold this galaxy cluster together. But later on in the in the 60s and 70s, when um, observations of, of the rotation of, of spiral galaxies also required this extra invisible matter, then the idea started to become more accepted. Mm, it was sort of a progression from this crazy idea that a lot of mass was there. We can't see it yeah. in these clusters, and you think, oh, okay, maybe, whatever. And then, as you say, you look at individual galaxies themselves, and you see how they rotate. Yes. They had to postulate exactly the same thing, this yeah. dark matter, which allowed the galaxies to rotate and it, it, at the rate that they do. That's right, and all of a sudden it didn't seem so crazy that, uh, that there, there was a similar situation going on in galaxy clusters. How does this relate to X-rays? Well, so when, um, when people first started uh, using X-ray telescopes, so um, X-ray detectors that they, they put in orbit to, to study the universe, and they, they found that galaxy clusters were very bright sources of X-rays, um, and there was some debate initially as to what the source of this X-ray should be whether it, it was um, a diffuse emission coming from the whole of a galaxy cluster or whether it was the sum of lots of, of points of emission coming from the galaxies themselves. Um, and better quality data showed that it was indeed almost all a diffuse emission coming from the whole of a galaxy cluster. And it was, it was coming from very hot ionized gas uh, that filled the entire galaxy cluster. And so initially this might seem like... Um, Maybe a possible explanation for, for where all this missing material is. Maybe the dark matter was this hot gas. Exactly, but but um, what it turns out is if you if you measured the temperature of this gas from the X-ray observations, then that 
gives you um, a measurement of the kinetic energy of the gas particles. And you can do exactly the same experiment that Zwicky did with the galaxies themselves and ask how much gravitational potential energy do I need to hold all of these gas particles together in the cluster. And you find that the, the, the same thing again, that even if you include all of the mass that's there in the gas, you still need around um, 90% of the material in this galaxy cluster to be the invisible dark matter. Mm. So the gas wasn't the answer to the dark matter mystery for these clusters of galaxies. No, right? that's right. So you end up with a, a scenario where a galaxy cluster is made up of maybe 90% dark matter um, and then of the remaining uh, normal matter um, that we call baryonic matter, um, uh, the majority of that is in the form of gas and then a few percent is in the form of the stars that are in the galaxies that we can see. And one of the things that we can do with X-rays and, and studying galaxy clusters is try to learn a little bit more about this dark matter. Now, what my science is, is mainly aimed at, my research is, is trying to weigh galaxy clusters, so trying to work out how much a galaxy cluster weighs. And this is a difficult thing to do because, of course, they're dominated by this dark matter that we can't mm. see. So what we have to do is, is to use the properties that we can observe so, for instance, the um, the luminosity of the X-rays or the temperature of the gas that's emitting the X-rays, both of which we can um, measure from X-ray observations, um, trying to use those properties to tell us about how much mass must be there in, in, the, in the galaxy cluster. Now, the reason that it's interesting to try and weigh galaxy clusters is that because essentially because galaxy clusters are the most massive gravitationally bound structures in the universe. They're basically the biggest objects that form in the universe. They sort of occupy a special uh, place in the hierarchy of structures in the universe, um, which means that they are um, the number of galaxy clusters and the masses of galaxy clusters is very sensitive to the type of universe that we live in. So, um, for instance, if we're interested in understanding the universe that we live in, and measuring things like the, the expansion of the universe um, and the, the future expansion of the universe and um, understanding the total amounts of dark matter in the universe and the energy content of the universe. All of these different kind of parameters that tell us about our universe. Well, if, if we lived in a universe that had a different set of those parameters, then the numbers of galaxy clusters and the masses of galaxy clusters would be different. And so we can do experiments where we count galaxy clusters and we measure their masses and we compare that to, to different model universes. And so we look for the, the model universes that best describe the observations we make of galaxy clusters in the real universe, and that then tells us about the universe that we live in. Mm. So, as you say, if the universe was slightly different, operated in a slightly different way, then the number, the size, the nature of these galaxy clusters that you observe will be different. Exactly. So How sensitive, though, is it? How sensitive are the observational things that you, you see in these galaxy clusters, the, the number, the size, the mass? How sensitive are those observational quantities to the underlying universe uh, parameters? Well, in principle, they're um, extremely sensitive. And, you know, there are, there are several different techniques that astronomers use to try and get at, at measuring these different um, cosmological parameters that describe our universe. And galaxy clusters as uh, studies have the potential to be sort of foremost amongst them. But the real limiting factor um, in how well we can measure these properties of the universe from galaxy clusters is how well we can measure the masses of the galaxy clusters. So really, before we can get the best out of our studies of galaxy clusters in terms of understanding the universe, we really need to better understand how to weigh galaxy clusters. And that's really kind of what my research is focused on at the moment.
So how do you weigh a galaxy cluster? There are different techniques that astronomers can use to, to weigh galaxy clusters. And, and maybe the most reliable measurements we get are when we combine several of these different techniques together. Um, but one way of doing it is, as we mentioned, uh, as Wiki did in the, uh, pioneered in the 30s, is if you measure the velocities of the galaxies uh, from their redshifts and then balance that kinetic energy that you're measuring with the requirement that there be enough potential energy to hold it together. And that then gives you a measurement of how much mass must be in the cluster, so you can weigh it that way. Another technique is to use gravitational lensing. So this is when the, uh, because galaxy clusters are such massive systems, they warp the shape of space-time around them. And what that basically means is that they bend the paths of light rays that come from background objects um, so that when you look at a background object through a galaxy cluster, the galaxy cluster acts like a giant lens. And so it can distort the shape of a background object and it can magnify the image of that background object. And the amount by which it does those things depends on the amount of mass in the galaxy cluster. So if you can measure the strength of that effect, that gives you a way of measuring the mass of the galaxy cluster. Now, from an X-ray point of view, um, if you if you're willing to spend a long time looking at a galaxy cluster and get very good quality data, then you can measure the properties of of the radial profiles of the gas in the galaxy cluster. So by that, I just mean that if you measure how the temperature and the density of the gas vary as you go from the center of the galaxy cluster towards the outskirts, then you can combine those together to tell you how the pressure of the gas is varying as you go from the center towards the outskirts. And if you then require that 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 pressure in the gas is balanced by a gravitational force, then you can use those measurements to tell you how much mass must be in the galaxy cluster. Now, the disadvantage of that method is that it requires very detailed X-ray observations. Now, what I want is a really cheap and easy way of weighing galaxy clusters. So if we take a simple model for galaxy clusters, which is that they're all basically the same as each other, but just scaled up and scaled down versions of one another. Um, So a very massive galaxy cluster is just the same as a small galaxy cluster, provided that we, we scale them to be the same size. Um, and this is called a self-similar model. So just like Dr. Evil and Mini-Me, they're exactly the same, but scaled to different sizes. We can think of galaxy clusters in the same way. Now, if we're willing to use that model, then that tells us that there should be very simple relationships between the properties of a galaxy cluster that we can measure very easily. So, for instance, the, the luminosity of the, the X-ray-emitting gas in the galaxy cluster and the mass of the galaxy cluster. So if these relationships hold up, then that gives us potentially a very cheap way of, of weighing a galaxy cluster. So in an ideal world, what we would do is uh, we would be able to just go and take a very quick look at a galaxy cluster with an X-ray telescope, measure how bright it is, and then use one of these relationships to just read off how how massive the galaxy cluster should be. You're and building that, yourself a rule for exactly for yeah. any to to interpolate or yeah. extrapolate to other yeah, galaxies. Exactly, just or just like an, an exchange rate or something. We can we can we take the thing that we can measure very easily and just convert it straight into the the thing that we're really interested in, which is the mass of the galaxy cluster. Now, the, the, so the research that I've been doing has been testing these relationships and seeing, using real galaxy clusters, how well they hold up. Um, and so what, what, what I've been doing is I've put together a large sample of galaxy clusters of uh, 115 galaxy clusters that have all been observed with the Chandra X-ray Observatory, which is, um, one of the two very powerful X-ray observatories that are in orbit at the moment. Um, Chandra is, is the one that's operated by NASA. And then there's a second one called XMM-Newton, 
which is operated by the European Space Agency. Now, using these observations um, of this large sample of galaxy clusters, we were able to uh, measure their different properties. So um, uh, the, the main ones we were interested in were to measure the luminosity of the X-ray emitting gas and to measure the temperature of the X-ray emitting gas and also the mass of the X-ray emitting gas. Now, those three things are actually very easy to measure from an X-ray observer's point of view. But what we're really interested in is not not the mass of the gas, but the total mass of the system. So the question is, how well do those three properties that we can observe correlate with the mass of the galaxy clusters, which is what we really want? Okay, so that's the total mass, including all of the dark matter. And so what, what I found is that traditionally um, astronomers have been uh, most keen on using the temperature of the gas, and that's been seen as the most reliable way to measure the, the mass of the galaxy cluster. And and that's because the the relationship that you get between the temperature and the mass is, a, is has a fairly low scatter. So what by that I just mean that uh, for if you take a, a handful of galaxy clusters that all have the same mass, then the range of temperatures that they have is is quite small. Mm. Okay, so that that then means that when you read off from your scale from a, a given temperature, then there's only a narrow range of masses of galaxy clusters that could give you that temperature. Now the luminosity, on the other hand, which is kind of the, which is the easiest property to measure of a galaxy cluster. You can measure that just by looking at a galaxy cluster. Now, that luminosity has traditionally been seen as a, as a rather poor um, way of estimating the mass of the galaxy cluster. And that's because it's been found to have a very large scatter between the luminosity and the mass. So you can measure the luminosity very easily, but then you find that there's actually a rather large range of masses of galaxy clusters that might give you that luminosity. So... One of the main results from my research has been to show that if we're careful about how we measure the luminosity of the galaxy cluster, in particular if we remove um, the central region of the galaxy cluster from our measurement, then we can actually get a very low scatter relationship with mass. So we can dramatically improve the reliability with which we can estimate the mass of the galaxy cluster from the luminosity. Um, And this suddenly means that if, as long as we can apply this technique um, of removing the core regions from our measurements, then we can essentially be in, in um, an ideal situation where we can just take a very quick look at many, many galaxy clusters. Um, and, and from that, that simple measurement of the brightness of the galaxy cluster, work out what the masses of those clusters are. So this then opens the door to generating uh, very large samples of galaxy clusters that, that we can do easily because we don't need to study each one in a lot of detail, um, but that and then um, estimate the masses for that large sample, which can then um, take us a, a, a step forwards in terms of using these galaxy clusters and our measurements of their masses to better understand the universe that we live in. So long as you <coughs> look at the luminosity of these clusters, not in the central region of the clusters, you look in the some, I guess some annulus or some ring around the, the central core of the, of the cluster. That's right. So providing that you remove a fairly large region from the center of the cluster um, out to a radius of about 150 kiloparsecs, then that's uh, sufficient to dramatically reduce the scatter. Now, the reason that you have to remove the, the core regions of clusters is because galaxy clusters on a whole are quite simple objects, but there's a lot of complicated things that go on right in the middle of them. These include the fact that uh, most galaxy clusters have at their centre a large dominant galaxy. And those galaxies tend to host 
uh, very massive black holes um, that can be extremely active in the sense that they um, shoot jets of relativistic material out into the the gas atmosphere of the galaxy cluster. Um, and that material um, is observed to be interacting with the gas in the galaxy cluster. And so this is a way that the the, um, the black hole, the energy from the black hole can be injected into the gas in the galaxy cluster in the central regions. And so that's that can cause the the properties of the gas to be messed up compared to how they would be if, if the galaxy cluster was just a nice simple object sitting there. But probably the single most important reason that we have to remove the centre from our galaxy, the galaxy clusters is that there's um, a runaway cooling process that can go on in, in the, the central parts of galaxy clusters. And the reason this happens is that the emission of X-rays from the gas in the galaxy clusters is proportional to the density of the gas squared. So it's, it's very um, strongly dependent on the density of the gas. Now, galaxy clusters are densest in the centre, so the gas in the centre is densest, and so it emits the most strongly there in the X-rays. Now, this means that that gas uh, loses its energy, its thermal energy, very efficiently in the form of X-ray emission. And so the gas cools and condenses, and so it gets denser, which means that it emits uh, more efficiently, it gets brighter, so it loses its energy more quickly, and um, a runaway process can occur where the gas keeps cooling, keeps getting denser, more gas from the uh, outer parts of the galaxy cluster can fall in and then in turn get denser and cooler. And so we end up with a situation where the very centre of the galaxy cluster can be extremely bright and and rather cool compared to the rest of the galaxy cluster. And so this this very bright, cool region um, can be a, a very significant bias on the, the measurement that you make of the brightness of a galaxy cluster. Because if you compare two galaxy clusters that had the same mass, um, one of them had um, one of these cool core um, regions in the centre and the other didn't, then the one with the cool core would appear dramatically more luminous than the one that, that didn't have a cool core. So this really um, dominates the, the scatter that we found between the luminosities of the galaxy clusters and, and their masses. Hmm. Why couldn't you stop, though, at uh, measuring the temperature? You mentioned that there was a strong correlation between temperature and the mass of the galaxy cluster. Why couldn't you just use that measurement? Temperature is, is still a good way to estimate the masses of galaxy clusters, but it's not perfect. One of the reasons that it's not perfect is that um, galaxy clusters form via uh, merging together of smaller objects. And so galaxy clusters are actually quite dynamical systems. They're always growing, and they grow via smaller objects falling into them, or sometimes even merging with with uh, very massive objects. And so mergers between galaxy clusters are, are quite important events. And when a galaxy cluster merges with another galaxy cluster, the properties of the gas can be quite badly disrupted. But in particular, the temperature of the gas is quite sensitive to this event. If you look at a galaxy cluster that is in the process of, of merging or, or has recently merged, then the temperature that you measure is not necessarily a good reflection of the mass of that galaxy cluster. So while it's known that mergers between galaxy clusters can affect the temperature of the gas and cause the temperature to give you an unreliable measurement of the mass of the galaxy cluster, we found that if we use the luminosity of the gas, and again, providing we remove the core region from the, the centre of the galaxy cluster from our measurement, then the luminosity is much less affected by um, the process of merging in galaxy clusters. And in fact, this, this makes some sense because 
during the, the merger between two galaxy clusters, the strongest effect that you get on the luminosity of the gas is when the cores of the two galaxy clusters pass through one another. And by definite definition, this happens in the core of the galaxy cluster. So if we're removing that region, then um, even though we were primarily motivated to do that because we wanted to remove the effects of the, the runaway cooling that can go on in the centers of galaxy clusters, we get the added benefit that we also remove the strongest effects that mergers have on our measurements. So um, we're left with a situation where, so although traditionally temperature has been seen as the perhaps the best way to measure the mass of a galaxy cluster from an X-ray observation, we found that luminosity um, is at least as good, but it has the benefit that it's much easier to measure. If you want us to measure the masses for a very large sample of galaxy clusters, which is really kind of the the, the end motivation of, of a lot of this work, we want to measure measure masses for very large samples of galaxy clusters um, in order to to put these studies together to measure the properties of the universe. Now, if you're going to do that for a very large sample, it's much cheaper and easier to do that just by measuring their luminosities. That can be done with very short observations compared to um, the more detailed observations that are required to measure the temperature of the gas. So you mentioned that you have a sample of 115 galaxies to start this work off and make a discovery about the luminosity relationship with mass. I guess your next step is to do the same again, apply what you've found regarding the luminosity by removing the the, the core of each cluster and make more observations with uh, these telescopes. The next step that I want to do is to, to, to build on this work of using X-ray measurements to, to measure the masses of galaxy clusters by com- comparing those observations and those measurements with the measurements that we have from other techniques. And in particular, I've, I've assembled a sample of 35 galaxy clusters for which we can measure the masses from gravitational lensing, so using the the lensing effect of the the mass of the galaxy cluster on back the images of background objects from the X-rays, which um, I've already talked about for this this large sample, and also from another technique um, known as the Sonyev-Zeldovich effect. Um, and this is a very uh, interesting technique that's still in its um, its early stages of, of of development, really. But in principle, this is a very very powerful way of studying galaxy clusters. Now, the Sonyev-Zeldovich effect is, occurs when photons from the cosmic microwave background pass through the hot gas in the atmosphere of a galaxy cluster. And when they do so, the, the photon can interact with an energetic electron in the, the gas in the galaxy cluster and be scattered up to higher energies. So that process is called inverse Compton scattering. And so when that happens to, um, to a lot of photons from the microwave background, you can measure the change in energies of them. So if you look um, at a particular frequency of, um, of photons from the microwave background, you'll notice that there's a, a decrement of that frequency because the photons that, that were at that frequency, so that had that energy, have been scattered up to higher energies. There's a hole in the spectrum. Exactly, there's a dip in the spectrum. And then if you look at higher frequencies, then you'll find that there's an increment because there are more photons there because they've been scattered up from lower energies. So traditionally, the Sonyev-Zeldovich effect measures the strength of that dip in the spectrum you get, where the photons have been removed because they've been scattered up to higher energies by the hot gas in the galaxy cluster when they pass through it. Now, the strength of that effect, so the, if you like, the depth of the dip in the spectrum, depends on the properties of the gas in the galaxy cluster, so on the temperature and density of the gas. So it's a little bit like the X-ray techniques that we use, but instead of looking at the 
the emission from the gas, we're measuring the, the scattering properties of the gas. And that's important because it has the effect that the the strength of the sunyev zeldovich effect is independent of the redshift of the galaxy cluster. So because it's a scattering effect, and the source of our photons is the cosmic microwave background, so that's at a, a fixed redshift, then the redshift of the galaxy cluster itself doesn't make any difference. So this is very exciting because it means that it's just as easy to observe a galaxy cluster at a very high redshift using the sunyev zeldovich effect as it is to observe a galaxy cluster that's nearby. Now, the same isn't true for X-ray or optical or gravitational lensing observations. And so, although these techniques are still somewhat in the early stages, um, predictions are that the the Sunyev-Zeldovich effect can provide a very powerful way of measuring the masses of the galaxy clusters. So what, what's going to be very interesting to do is to um, put is to use this sample of galaxy clusters where we have already X-ray observations and gravitational lensing observations and also put together Sunyev-Zeldovich effect observations and then make those comparisons. So we're asking the question, if we have, um, we can estimate the mass of the galaxy cluster from the X-ray observations and also from the gravitational lensing observations, so that gives us a, a reliable measurement of the mass of the cluster, then how well to the properties that we can measure with the Sunyev-Zeldovich effect compare with that mass. So how good a mass scale can we come up with for the Sunyev-Zeldovich effect? And if we can do a good job of calibrating that scale, then that really opens the floodgates because then as more and more um, telescopes are being uh, designed and coming online to study galaxy clusters using the Sunyev-Zeldovich effect, and because the, the measurements are insensitive to the redshift of the clusters, we're suddenly going to be able to put together very large samples of galaxy clusters out to very large redshifts. And if, if we can apply the scale that we're going to calibrate between the Sunyev-Zeldovich effect properties and the mass of the galaxy clusters, then we're really opening the door to being able to do extremely powerful tests of the uh, different cosmological models. It's very exciting. You're building the essentially the exchange rate between observations of these galaxy clusters way out to high redshifts. And with simple observations of the Sunyev-Zeldovich uh, effect, or the acid effect, yes. you can say, well, that's how heavy it is. It's fantastic. That's right, yeah. I mean, the bottom line is we just want um, the, to come up with the simplest and easiest and cheapest possible way to estimate the mass of a galaxy cluster from the different properties that we can easily observe, whether they be the luminosity of the X-ray gas or the strength of the Sunyev-Zeldovich effect. And then you take it uh, to your friendly universe modeler and say, well, this is what we actually observe. Clusters of galaxies have this mass from redshift whatever up to present day. Your models better produce the same thing. Yeah, exactly. And we can ask them what type of models will produce these, will we produce these observations? What type of universe do we live in? Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. So there you have it. Thanks for that, Nick. Yes. Fascinating research from Ben. And now going from X-ray observ observations to what you can do with your own eyes, here's Ian Morrison with the night sky this month. Well, hi, everybody. In some sense, June isn't the best month for observing the heavens. If you actually live in the north of England, and even worse in Scotland, it never gets to astronomical or past astronomical twilight. It never gets totally dark uh, for a few weeks either side of the summer solstice, which interestingly this year is on June the 20th 
just before midnight universal time. But of course, that means it's just before 1am、uh, British summertime. So I guess we could say that the solstice is either on the 20th or the 21st, depending how we feel. But it is interesting, it's, it's, it's fairly well back and nominally comes into the 20th rather than the 21st. Well, in the few hours we do have to see the heavens, if we start off looking towards the west after sunset, we have the constellation of Leo. And we'll come back to that because it contains, or nearby, two of the planets this month. Coming around from Leo in the south, fairly empty part of the sky that contains Virgo, and then lower down in the south, particularly after midnight, one can actually see Scorpius with the red star Antares, and then Sagittarius. Now, sadly, from My latitude here at Jodrell Bank in, in Manchester, they're barely above the horizon and we don't see those constellations at all well, which is a pity because, in fact, this is where one will find the planet Jupiter、uh, this summer. High overhead, though, we have the constellation of Ursa Major, which is full of interesting things. And if you look on the Night Sky website, there's quite a detailed summary of what you can find there. But as the night goes through, then we have this rather lovely part of the sky becoming visible. Essentially, the constellations of Cygnus, Lyra, and Aquila, the Eagle. The brightest stars of these, Deneb in Cygnus, Vega in Lyra, and Altair in Aquila, the Eagle, make up a triangle, which I think Patrick Moore called the Summer Triangle. And It's a very nice part of the sky.、Uh, there's a lovely planetary nebula, the Ring Nebula M57, which you can seek out with a telescope in Lyra.、Um, there's another one, in fact, between Aquila and Cygnus called the Dumbbell Nebula. And lots of exciting things to see as well. Beautiful double star system in Lyra. Again, all of those are detailed、uh, on the website. So if you are prepared to stay up during the midnight hours, Then there's a fair bit to see. We've got three planets visible and、uh, some quite nice objects in the sky as well. So let's just have a look at the planets now.、Um, I'll start with Saturn.、Um, really, this is the last month that we can see it before it disappears and will reappear again in, in, in a few months in, in the dawn. It's、um, very close to the star Regulus in Leo. I think it starts the month. Just、uh, about three degrees away to the left, and then by the end of the month, it's about five degrees away. It's moving eastwards now. It will be fairly low, so we're not going to see it all that well, but you should be able to make out, if the seeing is at all good, the, the Cassini's division in the rings, and also at least with a small telescope,、uh, the planet Titan. A six inch telescope, or even better, an eight inch telescope, will show you three or more satellites. But of course, as it's getting rather low, and it won't be that dark when you see it, probably they won't be quite so visible. So maybe Titan is the only one we'll see this month easily. It's not as bright as it sometimes is. I've said this several times this year. The rings are closing, and early next year, and the very end of this year, they'll be basically edge on to us, so we won't actually see the rings at all on a couple of occasions. But have a last try to see it. It is a lovely looking planet.
What about Mars? Well, Mars is actually moving up into Leo, and during the month it gets quite close. And at the very end of the month, we'll come back to this as a highlight. It's actually only three quarters of a degree away from Regulus. It's only about、uh, five arc seconds in angular size now, so you'll be very pushed to see any detail at all on the surface. It will just look like a, a salmony pink disk. Still very pretty, and I will return to that a little bit later on. Now for Venus. Well, sadly, we won't see it this month. It actually passes behind the Sun. On June the ninth, that's in fact called superior conjunction. So we really don't have a chance to see it at all, and we have to wait until about the end of July, when it will become visible low in the west after sunset. And Mercury is in much the same position, but in this case, it actually pass- passes between the Earth and the Sun.、Uh, that's called inferior conjunction, the exact opposite, and that's on almost the same time at June the seventh. So it won't really be visible until the very end of the month, when it rises low in the east-northeast just before dawn.、Um, the reddish star Aldebaran, which lies in the direction of the Hyades cluster in Taurus, isn't very far away, and you could well confuse them. But planets scintillate, or the nice word is twinkle, rather less than the stars. So if you see them both, Aldebaran will be the one that's twinkling. And Mercury will be one that has a slightly steadier image. That's because the angular size is larger, and the the twinkles sort of average out a bit. Okay,、um, what about、uh, some highlights this month? Well, there isn't an awful lot, I'm afraid, to go for.、Um, on June the seventh, if it's clear just after sunset, there's a rather nice skyscape, as I like to call it, in the west.、Um, Basically, Leo is sort of setting towards the west, but between Leo and the horizon, you'll see the moon. And just up to the left of the moon would be the planet Mars. I said that during the month it's working its way towards Leo. Up to the left of Mars, you should see the bright star Regulus in Leo, and just a few degrees up and to the left of Regulus will be the planet Saturn. So that's going to be quite a nice little skyscape. To see early in the month, and in fact, the same time, same place in the sky, but around the thirtieth of the month, then obviously Leo is going to be near the horizon at sunset, so it won't be quite so obvious. But on that night, Mars is just three quarters of a degree away, up to the right of Regulus. Saturn has been moving away. That's now about five degrees up to the left of Regulus. But all three should fit into the field of a pair of binoculars.、And、that should be quite a nice sight. So I'm certainly hoping it will actually be clear that particular night. We were very lucky in May that、uh, we had an astronomy meeting at Jodrell Bank, and Mercury was perfectly placed to see、uh, just to the lower left of the moon. So that was a very good night, and I'm hoping we have some nights like that this month as well. So I know you haven't got a long time to observe the heavens, but I do hope you go out and see something. Thanks for that, Ian. And that brings us to the end of the June issue of the Jodcast. 
We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time for the Dune Extra edition, hopefully with Dave again. Okay, now, just before we close for this episode of the Jodcast, Tim O'Brien is here with some exciting news for what's happening at Jodrell Bank Observatory in the coming month. Tim. Hi, Nick. Um, yeah, we're uh, oh, we're doing a few things, actually. I'll just uh, just run through them. One of, the, one of the things that's happening this very week, in fact, is that we've got uh, about 600 school children from across Cheshire, that's the, the county in the UK that, we're, that Jodrell Bank is based in, uh, and for the last few months, they've actually been growing plants in their classrooms um, with uh, seeds provided by a, a garden seed company, very kindly. Um, and uh, they've been sort of, you know, doing doing worksheets on how seeds grow and so on and nurturing them. And then what they're doing this week is they're actually coming to Jodrell to plant the planets. Plant um, the planets. Plant the planets, yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's actually a sort of, uh, it combines two things really. Is uh, It combines something called Cheshire's Year of Gardens, um, which is a which is a thing that the county has in terms of celebrating its uh, all the gar- nice gardens that are in the county, and, and the Jodrell Bank Arboretum is one of those gardens of distinction mm-hmm. um, in the county. So, as part of that, we're um, uh, we're using our Planet Path, which is a scale model of the solar system, at Jodrell. Um, so it extends from the sun out to Eris, since it's nice and up to date. Um, so it includes three dwarf planets, includes uh, Ceres, Pluto and Eris. Very good. Uh, and the whole scale of that's about a kilometre. So it's a kilometre from the sun to uh, to Eris, uh, mm. which is at the far end of our arboretum. And then, and then spread out at the, the right relative distances in that, in that model, uh, are all the planets and dwarf planets. Uh, so every stride you take in this model is about 10 million kilometers. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then actually, because it's hard to have a single model that does both sizes and distances, we've also got uh, a size model, which is where we've taken the, su- the, the Lovell telescope itself to be the size of the sun. Um, and then we've decided how big each planet would be relative to that. So, for example, all the inner planets, the rocky planets, are just stone disks set in the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Earth's sort of, you know, um, about less than it's about 60 centimetres or something. I can't remember now exactly what it is, but it's something of that order. Um, and they're sort of stone disks set in the ground. But then when you get to the gas giants, um, they're, they're huge, you know, Jupiter's sort of seven metres across or something like this on this scale. Um, so we couldn't represent that by a giant stone disc. So instead of what we've done, and also to illustrate the fact that they're sort of gas giants and a bit whiffly, um, is we've made little uh, stainless steel discs that are set in a circle that mark the perimeter of the planet. And then inside that, there's the opportunity to plant it up. Hmm. So in fact, what the kids are doing is 600 of them, hordes of them, are all arriving at Jodrell this this, this week uh, and part of next week uh, in groups from different schools to plant the seedlings that they've been growing in school within the perimeters of the gas giant planets. Yeah, good so fun. That's, that's one. That's one exciting event. And the people, um, can, people, the public can come and, and watch the kids people, plant out the, the, the they seedlings. They can do if they like. Yep, yep. There's a, you know, it's more, it's, it's more of an event for the kids themselves rather than as a spectator sport. But I'm sure if you were here, it might be might be amusing and probably rather muddy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, judging by the local weather we get. Um, but then later in the later in the month, we have got a few uh, public events. Um, on the 13th and 14th of June, we've got our second literature festival, uh, which is run in conjunction with the Times newspaper. Um, and what's happening at that weekend in particular, there's a thing called the Big Science Read that we're organising with the Manchester Literature Festival and the Manchester Science Festival later in the year. And we're launching it at this our, our Jodrell Bank 
um, festival and that's basically to encourage people to get interested in reading about science whether it be hard science in terms of science fact but also science fiction as well so we're we're sort of running a thing where we're going to get um astronomers but also other scientists and famous people to comment on what was the what's their favorite science book and sort of make a reading list and get kids and, and adults involved in that as well that's being launched there as part of that we're having two talks by authors we've got um an author called Piers Bizzini who is a sort of a science journalist and author who's going to talk to us about the culture of space flight so it's basically about you know heading into space the, the next final frontier and so on um, so that should be fun that's on the friday evening um and then on the saturday evening we've got a, a talk by brian aldis who's the science fiction author um who's written numerous science fiction books um and he's coming along and he's going to talk to us about science and civilization on the on the saturday evening and on the saturday afternoon there's a free rocket workshop Ooh. so we're going to have people can come along and uh, and make rocket rockets and uh, bring the family and fly the rockets around inside our marquee if it's raining and outside if it's uh, if the weather's clement yeah and the following week um on saturday the 21st of june we've got a garden party so that's to celebrate the summer solstice it's the longest day garden party um and it's all the usual things that we do in the summer in this country we drink pims apparently mm. um and we have strawberries and cream we have a barbecue and we're gonna have a string quartet as well so there's also going to be um, talks, and there's going to be talks about the work we do, uh, the work of the observatory and the astronomy that goes on at Jodrell. Um, there's also going to be um, some talks about the developments we're doing with our visitor centre. So we're planning a new visitor centre at Jodrell, so there's going to be some information about that. Um, we're going to have a, a sort of an interpreted move of the Lovell Telescope, so we're going to drive the Lovell Telescope around and put it through its paces and have a sort of commentary over how it works and what, it, what it's up to. Um, and then at the end of the evening, there's a, there's a big firework display. Oh, so, sounds like fun. Yep. So that's going to be good fun. That's the twenty-first of June. So again, we'll put um, I think we'll put the details on the on the website for people to have a look at if they're interested in coming along. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for that, Tim. Yes. So once again, thank you very much for listening, and please do review us on iTunes. Send us your feedback. Send us our questions for us to ask Tim in our Ask an Astronomer uh, segments. Uh, other than that, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you again soon. Our thanks to Tom Backus, who was Doctor Rattenstein. To Ellie Hirschman, who was Stuart and Professor O'Brien. Fiona Thrail, who was Megan. Dave McIver as David. And to David Alt for the script. So until next time, goodbye. Bye, everyone. Now I know what it feels like to be a podcaster. Oh, Nick. This work has sent you mad. Please come home. Please. Dr. Rattenstein, you must come away with us. Leave Professor O'Brien to finish up this podcast and let's get you home. You can't have eaten in days. Yes, maybe. Maybe you're right. Come, stupid. Yes, sir. Poor meddling with forces beyond his imagining. Still... The Jodcast, the twice-monthly astronomy podcast. Yes, it would be perfect. <laughs>